In the time frame that we have, really, um, I'm going to focus on three main aspects of evangelism. Three things that I think will be useful for your whatever you're doing. There are three things that can apply across, and um, that's just to tell you where we're heading. Um, two things I've noticed with, with people is firstly, ultimately, everybody wants to be understood. If you think about Psalm 139, we would have it up, but I'm sure you're familiar with that. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, that kind of concept that God created all people, and because he made them, he knows them completely. And so actually that longing, I see it all the time in the people that I come across, is want to be understood. Some want to, where will you be understood completely? God will completely understand you. The other side, um, that the other main tenet that I see in people is uh, longing to be eternally secure. And that works itself out in lots of different ways. I've got to work my butt off to make sure that I have a great house and a this and a that, or um, being the person that I need to be, getting my personal bests, and all that stuff is about living life to the full and being secure. So Ecclesiastes 4, 10, 11, though, tells us that it is God that has put that longing of eternity in every man's heart, but they can't understand it. So thinking of those two threads, where will they be completely, ultimately, eternally secure? In God's hands. Okay, so those two longings, deep longings in people, underpin a lot of um, pastoral care and evangelism, of course, don't they? Because pastoral care, people want to be understood. That's pastoral care. Standing alongside someone listening, isn't it? And that eternal security, that's evangelism, isn't it? The ultimate outcome of evangelism is that people are understood that they're forgiven and that they're eternally secure in him. So, um, as it says on your sheets there, only a relationship with God can bring these two things about completely. And only trusting in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as an atonement for our sin can heal our relationship with God ultimately. So that's the motivation. You're motivated out of the gospel, out of God laying down his life for us through Christ. And, and then our motivation becomes we love because he first loved us. So we share the gospel and we listen and stand alongside. Okay? Now, here's something for the crowd. Difference between empathy and sympathy. Often people get this wrong, so that's why I'm bringing it up. If you had to say, what is empathy and what is sympathy? Empathy is where you have an understanding of the particular situation, and sympathy is where you um, show feelings of, um, I'm sorry that that's happened. Yeah. 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 Does empathy have something to do with feeling for them, going through it with them, but not necessarily thinking it's a bad thing? Or a bad thing? You know, not thinking it's a bad thing? Yeah. Well, I just say. So sympathy, maybe 
this is what you're saying, I'm sorry that you're going through it, yeah. rather than I'm feeling that feeling for you as you go through it. Okay, so that's, that's some good um, distinguishing ideas. Welcome, by the way. It's good that you're here with a little one in any ideas about empathy? Other ideas about empathy and sympathy? We've got some ideas about sympathy being saying I'm sorry and empathy having a bit more to do with feelings. And I want to flesh that out a bit more. Like, is, is empathy, yeah, kind of feeling like you're sharing in their experience or sharing in their feelings? Mm. And how would you do that? Um, Well, I guess kind of listening to what they're saying and then being able to say, you know, that sounds really hard. Mm-hmm. So one of the, that's, that's good. One of the main differences and where we get it wrong and culturally we use the terms wrong is that what you said, I'm sorry, is coming from my perspective. So that is sympathy. I can be sympathetic. I'm sorry that happened to you, but you're always talking out of how you're feeling about it. Yep. Okay, empathy. Thank you. It's a slightly different view, Thank you very much. And empathy is um, trying to put yourself in their shoes. So that picks up that feeling, that what you were saying really, feeling what they're feeling, but... Um, we're thinking about empathy and sympathy, welcome, and the differences. Um, so empathy is really trying to get it from their perspective. So an example of that might be, you walk up to someone, you know that their mother has died, and you say, I am so sorry, you must be feeling awful about that. And she says, actually she was a complete witch, I'm really glad she's gone. Can you see the difference between empathy and sympathy? Sympathy... I'm sorry, I'm putting my feelings, I'm mad, I'm saying you'd feel like that, and she's saying, uh-uh, you want to get how I'm feeling, listen to me. My mother was a witch, I'm glad she's gone, so your empathy then changes, then you get to hear from her, and you're like, oh wow, your empathy is, what would it be like to have a mother like that? I can't imagine mother like that. I can't imagine that being my experience of mother. So instead of putting what you what you think or how you would feel onto that person, you start to hear and try and imagine what they feel. Empathy is the superior option. There's not. It's not really like that. Okay. In a way, it's just that the terms are wrongly wrongly understood and so therefore misused commonly. So if you want to write a card to someone and you say, "I am sorry." that your mother died. There's nothing wrong in saying that, is there? And if you haven't had a chance to talk to that person, you probably have no idea how they're feeling about it. But you can imagine. So you might... Empathy is going more into, I imagine that would be difficult for you. Then you're not putting your feelings on them. You're trying to imagine. Does that make sense? So, obviously, empathy is great because it's that sense of that person being understood by you because you're trying to get into their world. Now, caring Christians often get that bit a bit wrong. And often
involved, and even more so those involved in pastoral care, ministry, chaplaincy. Because we're all a bunch of rescuers. We want to help. We want to fix. So much so that we don't just put one foot in that world. We put both feet in, and then we're completely enmeshed. And we feel so much that we can't sleep at night because we're enmeshed in their worlds. So that's dangerous too. What a healthy set of empathy is that one foot in their world, one foot in my world. I know how I'm feeling about this. I'm trying to feel how that person's feeling about this. Is that making sense? Okay, so that's healthy empathy. <coughs> so just get us up to speed now that we've got PowerPoint. Those are the verses we were looking at. 139. About being understood. You've searched me, you know me, you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. <coughs> and that's the one from Ecclesiastes. God has set eternity in the hearts of men, but they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Motivation for pastoral evangelism in 1 John showing the gospel and then our motivation we love because he first loved us so a definition of evangelism that I use is a presentation of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit so that people will put their trust in God through him accept him as their saviour and serve him as their king in the fellowship of his church the definition of pastoral care which I use is um, pastoral care responds in an ongoing way to the deep and continuing need in all of us for loving support and nurture of our well-being. This need is heightened during times of personal crisis and losses. Often when we say the word pastoral care, we're thinking more of that bit, aren't we? The heightened during times of personal crisis and losses, <coughs> including social chaos and natural disasters, whereas at the beginning you can see it's saying a deep and continuing need in all of us for loving support and nurture of our well-being. That is why many churches organise pastoral care through Bible study because those are the weekly touch points where people come together and actually everybody needs pastoral care. Now and again, sometimes we have ups, sometimes we have downs and, and sometimes things that we can't see hit us. And on an everyday basis, we're jogging alongside each other in terms of pastoral care. That alongsideness is why churches organise pastoral care through Bible study, because you're alongside each other in those ups and downs of life. So it's not just the crises. It's the, I had a bad phone call at work today, I don't know what to make of it. Those kind of things. Or I've got a question about God and it's eating away at my heart and nobody at church wants to hear it. But it's really impacting me and my relationship with God. It's that stuff, isn't it? That is what's different about pastoral care and pastoral counselling. Pastoral counselling is for a specific 
issue for a specific time and you make an appointment and you go and see someone to sort something out. Can you see the difference? Pastoral care is jogging alongside every day in out of life. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, as it says in that last sentence, pastoral care often takes place informally and spontaneously. Don't we know that one? Just about to go home, put my coffee in hand, bombshell! Over the biscuit table! That's pastoral care, isn't it? You didn't have an appointment, you're not in a nice room, you haven't got an hour set aside, that's pastoral counselling, pastoral care, anytime, any place. Does that make sense about the difference? Yeah. I'm sure we're all familiar with it. Yeah. Can you just um, talk a little bit about what you think pastoral care is as opposed to, you know, say just being a friend or um, like kind of just, like when we say pastoral care, what are we talking about specifically? Yeah. Why can I do that? I'm going to look at three aspects, three key things of pastoral evangelism. Yeah. One of them is, um, it's on the, the other side, it's called initiative and freedom. The key to that is contracting. And that feeds in. Sure. Yeah. So who are you to that person? What is your role yeah. with that person? That really feeds in. Yeah. Sure. Um, there's a Catholic guy called Topper. He, he thinks about... He, he, he has a very useful mo- um, like model, or he calls it the focuses of conversation. And in that he shows that all conversations kind of weave in and out of these different arenas. And that kind of, I think what you're getting at is, um, can you be a friend and be a pastoral? Where does pastoral care fit into friendship or something like that? Is that where you were kind of getting at? Yeah, yeah, we've had like some discussions amongst our church leadership team, like what, when, we're tr- when we say we're doing pastoral care, what are we actually wanting to do? Yeah. Like, are we just listening? Are yeah. we praying with people? Are we offering advice? Are we pointing them to the scripture? Like, what exactly... Do we want to be doing this pastoral care? Well, we're going to go to... Well, the first thing I'm going to do in a minute is look at the functions of pastoral care. Sure. And there are six of them. Yeah, I might be jumping so, ahead, so that's well, fine. No, that's, it's great that you ask questions. And, um, and that will fan those out. And maybe that will maybe that will help you to see the place yep. of the variety of things that can be involved in pastoral care. Yep. But also the contracting thing is a really big thing. Sure. That we, again as a Christian body, often get wrong and get boundaries merged and that kind of thing. But in terms of um, Topper, I'll just tell you about this since you've brought it up. Topper sees how um, conversations weave in and out of different states. So one will be social friendly and you're really just talking about the cricket, you're talking about the weather, you're whatever you're talking about. And there's not really any emotional content to the conversation. And then the next one is called psycho-emotional, where people start to attach an emotion to something like, I'm really annoyed with Tony Abbott at the moment. So he's still talking about the newspaper, but they've actually, they're displaying an emotion. And so good pastoral care is picking up that emotion and reflecting it back to that person and seeing what they want to do with it since they've entrusted you with that emotion. Spiritual conversation is wham bang straight in uh, I've got doubts about God um, or what I do to be saved 
sometimes when you're visiting on boards, I, I, I've explained to those who weren't here earlier, uh, coming out of the hospital chaplaincy background, but sometimes they're just straight in. Ah, oh, you're here, right. And, or they might say, oh, I don't want to talk to a chaplain today. Um, I'm not religious. And then they'll go on to tell you their life story. So do you walk out because they said I'm not religious or do you stay in this? So um, sometimes I go straight to spiritual. And the other aspect is ritual ritual practice, which would involve prayer. Um, obviously for Catholics, talk as a Catholic, it might involve um, sacraments are more important and not more important than what we do in church, but they're in the life of a Catholic, having communion or the last rites and things like that can be their need in, in that moment. So he sees that conversations flip from that. And I think there is that aspect of pastoral care, that things move around. And, and that's all about the other person's feeling safe. So it's safe to talk about the weather. It's not so safe to talk about their emotions. But sometimes they flip one in there to see what you do with it. And if you can handle that well, they might trust you with something else. So it's often a bit of a testing, testing out. Okay? And if, they, if you can handle the emotion, if you, if you think it's all right to be angry about something, they might tell you, oh, okay, what they're feeling spiritually. Does that make sense? Anyway, it flips around. It's not a, it's not a you might go social friendly to ritual and practice. It doesn't it's not a straight line. Okay, conversations do that, don't they? Anyway, I just tell you that because it's you've raised it. So we've we've done most of this. Loving others leads to empathetic listening. That is the key to pastoral care. That's actually missing on it. It should say L-O and E-L, pastoral care. Loving others leads to empathetic listening. Before some of those who came in later came in, we had a bit of a, a chat about empathy and sympathy and the differences. So you might want to catch up with someone and work that one out. So we've done this. Empathy, putting yourself in others' shoes. What makes a good listener? Can someone give me an example of someone who is a good listener to them? I always find it really helpful when they almost say the word that you said. Yeah. So they almost quote you back to you. So when you said that, 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 that you were, were you mean this? What does that do for you? <coughs> I'm wondering what makes you heard. You feel heard? And, and that sense that we were talking about before you came in was feeling understood, that every human being ultimately wants to feel mm-hmm. and be understood. And you feel like someone's heard you when they do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, has anyone got a, a, another example of good listening? So obviously that's a key one. I think not putting your two cents in and giving opinions along the way and advice, but actually just sitting and listening. Yeah. Just not going to fix it and solve it as they're talking. Yeah, not fixing, not me too-ism. Oh yeah, I have that too. And then you're off down your track. You've left them behind. Yeah. Asking questions. Just sort of get them to explain things. I have a strange relationship with questions. Yeah. Tell us. How's that make you feel? Well, you tell me what jobs you can think of 
where people use a lot of questions. Think of some jobs. Teachers. Teachers. Journalism. Journalists. Research. Researchers. Yep. types of jobs and people and what the effect of questions have on us. Can you put yourself in that space? What if they're questions though to better understand what they're saying to you? Is that what you put that saying? Well let's just go with that feeling of being incredibly annoying from just peppering Inquisition, or you feel probed, or whatever. So, um, open questions are good, but even those I would use reservedly. And the question why is particularly confronting because it goes right into the heart of a human being and the existential being. So, you really need to be careful with that one, use it sparingly. Open questions if you're going to use questions, but really, if you're reflecting back someone's feelings, you don't really need them. So I would always be trying to help you rid you of questions. If you're if you're really thinking pastoral care, if you're thinking pastoral counselling, if you're thinking Bible study leader, see we have so many hats. Questions have a place in those other roles, don't they? So we use them. But if you're thinking um, pastoral care, I want to be one foot in their space. I really want to understand them and I want to watch what's going on with me. Avoid questions and see how you fare without them. Yes. So, do you find in a situation there are some people that find it hard to express themselves? Even if it's a personal or a difficult topic. Um, so, not probing the questions, but helping them to release that, like to. I don't know the way of doing it, but I, I find sometimes there are people that just need a little prompt or a, uh, yeah, I don't know, yeah, just a little bit more to help them express what they're struggling with. Certainly, um, I wouldn't apply this across necessarily to children. I wouldn't apply this across necessarily to someone with a second language. There may be a real need to help frame questions. Somebody maybe within mental health disability, you may need to be forming structured questions, but usually others you can find another way you might observe using down today. We're very uncomfortable with silence as well, aren't we? Sometimes it takes time for things to tick over and just sitting with someone in the silence. Then the gold comes. So, oh, um, yeah, depends on age and mental capacities and language. I've, I've seen questions are needed more in those circumstances. I think it's just what we're used to. We're just used to, and when we have a role with someone, we usually use questions. We feel empowered by our role, as their Bible study leader or their whatever. And, and there's, a, there's a place for that. 
But just be sure what you're doing. Which hat have I got on right now? Okay? So, I, yeah, I have, a, I have a love-hate relationship with questions because I need them a lot in some of the work that I'm doing, but I know the effect they have in pastoral care. Can I just, will I be able to ask a question? <laughs> <laughs> of course. So it's a great form of questions. Obviously, if they've finished their spiel about what they're saying, like, how do you progress the conversation? Do you just... Would you say, do you have anything more to add? Or is it just... Would you just wait in the silence where they can think about it a bit Go, more? Or? Golden rule of silence is if they create it, they will break it. Unless it becomes oppressive. Okay. okay. So do you just focus on the skill of reflecting? Yeah, so. reflecting back their emotions. Okay. And what's your name? Okay. What Ben said, how he feels heard is really um, when someone reflects back to them and he can hear that they've heard him. Yeah. Um, I wasn't really going to focus on this stuff, but this seems to be where you want to go. This was the stuff I was going to whistle through. Um, so here's some ideas of active listening. Um, I'm sorry it's gone off the screen like that. I'm not sure why. So being focused on the other, staying alongside, not ahead of. So often we're like two miles down the road, an inch rather than a mile. Um, focusing on the feelings, not the details. We get interested in this story and then we ask a question and it's often to, for our own curiosity. And they haven't chosen to give us that detail and they don't need to. But if we stay with them, it'll probably come up anyway. And if it doesn't, are you really there for them or are you there to have your own curiosity um, satisfied. So um, focusing on the feelings, not the details, and reflecting these back to lead into what Kurt was asking. Oh, this one. And being aware of your own agendas. So when we are, when we have got um, multiple roles with someone, we always have agendas. And it may be that you're on a pastoral care team or you're a, pastor, you're a Bible study leader or something like that and the minister has given you the heads up that something's going on in that person's life and he particularly wants you to be watching out for them. So you have an agenda given by the minister in good faith, out of love, but you have an agenda that you want to get to with that person. And that is, can get, really get in the way. So it takes a real discipline to recognise that and stick with them on where they want to go. Could you just out your agenda? No. Well, um, it depends on your relationship with that person and if you wanted to be transparent and say, hey, um, so-and-so's told me to look out for you because you're having a rough time, that's a good, that's a good, start, good spot to start in because then that's not going to get in the way, if you feel that that's appropriate mm. with that person, within that relationship, it's probably better to have that open agenda, but still you've got to work out, do they want to go there with me in this moment of time? But wouldn't that make them feel like they're a project or they're a, something that has to be watched out for? That's why I'm saying it needs to be, within that relationship you have to work that out. And what's appropriate in that relationship. But uh, open agenda, if it's an if it's appropriate that, that you've been told that information, I don't know. Um, 
when we get to contracting, you'll see that more as well. Initiative and freedom kind of shows that a bit more. So there's the questions, open, not closed. A hurting heart has no ears. That comes out of an African saying. When someone is in emotional, psychological or physical pain, it is hard to hear theology, however truthful or important it may be. So if we seek to listen first and allow a person to be truly heard, they may then feel ready to also hear from us. Truth and timing. Truth and timing. Okay? So this takes us to holistic pastoral care, which is the one that I wanted to... um, which will fan out some of the things that we've been thinking about. These are six functions of pastoral care. They've been developed over 30, 40 years through pastoral care and counselling. So from the 50s right through to the 90s. On the back of your sheet you have bullet point, well, the letters, the beginning of the letters for that. So guidance, healing, nurturing, reconciliation, sustaining and liberation. Is it Karen? Kate. Kate. So in here, perhaps this will start to answer that question you asked about earlier. What is pastoral care? These are functions that in hospital chaplaincy we are looking out for. They're saying that um, people need guidance, healing, nurturing, reconciliation, sustaining, liberation. How do we tell which one when? Sometimes we meet people and they've got all of that going on all in one hit. So how are you going to work out what their greatest need is and how to offer pastoral care within that need? Well, they will make it clear to you. They will make it clear to you because they will keep going back to the one that is top of their list. As evangelicals, which ones do you think we, we, um, we use the most? Gardens. Yeah. Gardens is a strong one for evangelicals. What's another one? Reconciliation. What do you mean by reconciliation in this context? I will go um, into it a bit more deeply, but just on the surface. Reconciliation, guidance. They're the two, and liberation. Those are the three strong ones for evangelicals, that they work and function in a lot. And that is because we take the gospel seriously, we believe there is only one way to Jesus Christ, and we know and operate under that caveat that someone's greatest need is a spiritual one, and that is to be reconciled to God. Okay, So that is why we operate like that. But as you can see, it, it, it has a place. It has a place, and it's um, place, reconciliation particularly, is a brokenness, forgiveness in a relationship with God or with others. So um, what would you, how would you know what's going on for a person? Well, for guidance, the kind of language that would come up for someone who really truly needs guiding was we jump there straight away. I need to guide this person. I need to give them the theology around this. 
might not be top of their list in this moment. It might be two weeks down the track. And often we can see what they need, but we've got to work in the moment. What do they need right now? What's top of their list right now? They're going to say, they're going to be showing signs of confusion in their language. I'm not really sure um, what God wants of me right now. Might be, you need to listen a bit more to that and find out what they want you to guide them in. Okay? If we look at the next one, healing, the kind of language you're going to hear is hurt, woundedness, being betrayed by my friend. By the way, anger is a emotion that we often grab but there's always something underneath anger. And often it's things like this. Anger's on the surface and we see it a lot and we think, oh, that person's really angry. Always try and think, what's underneath that anger? And anger's on display, there's something underneath. So hurt and woundedness are likely to be in the conversation. We're listening for the emotion. Nurturing. Someone mentioned that as one. I mean, disciple, discipling new Christians, meaning church planters. This is your field, isn't it? Nurturing is a big part of that. Um, and there'd be a sense of immaturity or insecurity and a needing to grow and to bring security and maturity. You'll hear it in the language. Reconciliation, brokenness broken relationships with God or others. And obviously we know how the gospel speaks into that. Um, sustaining. That is a sense of one thing's happened over another, over another, over another, and that person is truly overwhelmed. It's often a time of complete chaos. And our job then is to hold that chaos. And someone said, not fix it, not hold it. Bring some form of containment just by listening. Let them spew it all out. And I've got a model for you around that in a minute. It will help you with that. Liberating. You're going to hear ideas of stuckness and trappedness in what they're telling you. And this can come, you know, bitterness, unresolved conflicts. And that person gets stuck. In terms of referring, if someone is truly stuck, stuck, that is the time where you might refer someone for pastoral counselling. So you know what I was saying earlier about the difference between counselling and pastoral care? There are often times that we're trying to be counsellors when we're actually not trained to and not meant to be counsellors. But good pastoral care will lead you to a place where you actually know when to refer. So they're really stuck, and I actually can't. They actually need some objective help with this issue for a period of time. So it's getting discernment on that. Um, can you tell me what um, in places of the next level up, say psychologists and psychiatrists, or is that not the next level up? Are they on the same level as counsellors, in your view? When do you refer? Well, I don't know 
why you'd be making those kind of decisions. I mean, I think it's good to have a list of people that you would refer to, mm -hmm. but you're saying, how would I know the difference whether they need a psychiatrist or a psychologist? Is that oh, right? No, or, no, or like, do they need a counsellor or do they need, um, you know, perhaps more medical intervention? You know, there, there, there comes points in things like depression or anxiety or um, even situations where you know, someone's lost so much stuff, maybe they've got so many of those things going on, how do you guard, they might need a counsellor or they actually really might need a doctor or, yeah. Well, I think you'd have to gauge it in the moment, but yeah. always have try and have a try and have a list of all of the three yeah. available that you would refer yeah. to. And yeah. if you don't have that to hand, ask a member of staff in the church where you are, or find out. And, and sadly, sometimes you just aren't mm. no. good psychologists nearby. No. And and uh, this is being recorded, so. I have to live with this comment. But, um, you know, a good counsellor, psychologist or psychiatrist doesn't have to be Christian to be good. Okay. Obviously, if you've got a good Christian psychologist, psychiatrist or counsellor, they're going to be able to work with somebody and take into account their um, Christian faith mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. But good psychological care um, is better than dodgy psychological care is what I'm trying to say. Yes. So don't be afraid to say, if you know that someone's got a good track record of helping people come through things, don't be afraid to send them to a good psychologist. Or, yeah. Do you want to add to that? Because I know that you've worked in psychology. No, I think that that's fair. I think I find, I think that it's difficult in I don't think that we do lists very well in terms of knowing who to refer to yeah. as a community. I think that's something that is missing. Is missing. So if you're struggling, you're not the only one. Yeah. But I think what you're saying is sound. Let's keep moving. We can always chat about those kind of questions afterwards as well. So what can get in the way? Our own agendas we've briefly talked about and also drama triangles. I won't spend time on this, but I will give you a handout which has a whole load of feelings on one side. Can you pass that track for me? And on the other side has a diagram of a drama triangle. There's three components to a drama triangle. Victim, rescuer and persecutor. And we get caught up in these all the time. All the time. And the triangle moves around. So you might start as a victim, poor me, this, this and this has happened, and then, oh, I'll give you a good example. So um, I went, I was doing a hospital ward visiting and a, a, a guy found out that I was an Anglican and he said, oh, Peter Jensen, what an awful man. <laughs> And I was thinking, oh my gosh, I'm at Moore College, I know him personally, he's not an awful man. So, big, strong, pulling me to do what? Defend Peter Jensen. Then if I do that, I start to persecute. See how it swaps? So at the moment, I'm the victim. <gasps> and then if I start to defend Peter Jensen, then I become the persecutor. How 
how could you possibly say that about him? And he becomes the victim. And often, actually, we're more, like I mentioned earlier, um, in Christian ministry and people who are ministry-minded are often more rescuers. The fix-its, the running in and saving the day. When we get involved in that drama triangle, we're gone. We can no longer listen. So you can see how that affects our pastoral care. You no longer listen. So what do you do to stay out of the loop? And if you find yourself in the loop, just get out of the loop. Get out! I'm saying a loop, but get out of the triangle. Because it compromises your listening. And we also do it with God. Because people will say things about God and we want to defend him. Can I tell you, he's a big enough guy. He can fight his own battles. He doesn't need us to defend him. I'm not saying there isn't a place for apologetics. I'm just saying that in conversations, it's much better that we listen to their ideas about God and hear them because there's often pain or hurt around that. Okay? So with the um, Peter Jensen example, what would you, how would you go that? Okay, so what I said was, oh, wow, you, you don't, it doesn't sound like you like him very much. I came, oh, oh, he just kept on going, he kept on going, trying to hook me. Look what he's done to this, 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 and this. Uh, it was a very strong force, I just wanted to, it's not true, I know him, he's not like that. He doesn't mean that. I wanted to do that the whole time, but I just kept going back to, this is what he thinks, I've got to reflect what he thinks. You sound pretty angry about that. Leave it in, it's his feelings, it's his stuff. Leave it in his court. Even if I totally don't agree with it. And then notice what goes on inside you, because there's the tension. Not involved. Well, we do it all the time, especially in families. Can you imagine? Drama triangle. Oh my gosh, all the time in our families. So it's happening, it's happening all the time, but if you're aware of it and you want to be good listeners, then that will help. Yeah, I just, just, that's really interesting. But essentially, you want, with the rescuer, you want God to be the rescuer in the end. Is that the idea? Like, yeah. So you present God in a way that they can cast their burdens on. Yeah, and that, that, is, that is a really good theological way of looking at it. Um, but the rescue is there's often someone in that picture who comes and tries to save the day a bit. So someone says, I'm, ha- I'm like this, and we try and talk them out of it, instead of listening to why they feel like that. So we do it all the time. No, you're not. No, you're not. We think that's good encouragement was actually their greatest need might be to be heard because they're actually completely fragile and insecure about this thing. And if someone would just listen to them mm-hmm. instead of trying to talk them out of it, how they feel. So we rescue, we jump in. We rescue all the time. Don't we? Yeah. Don't we? Um, we've been dangerous with apologetics. Um, I run a um, evangelistic Bible discussion group yeah. for people who don't go to church. Yeah. Um, and we... I'm taking the attack with apologetics. So we talk about, first question might be, um, what do you think about religious people? Um, and the model for this discussion I'm using is, let's have an open question like that. Um, then let's look at what the Bible says. So the Bible says this. Yeah. Um, I feel like I struggle with this triangle, not to jump in and say, no, 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 you're wrong. Um, I guess do you have any tips with that like my model is let's open open the discussion let's have a discussion we're here to look at what the bible says 
Um, so this is let let God speak about to dispel those myths, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just wondering if you have any. I do have lots of them, but I think they would be best dealt with. Ask you later. Yeah, because yeah. I've got. I, we could talk about that for the rest of the time that we have. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is that all right? Yeah, that's I, right. I've got lots of thoughts on that. Okay. Um, so easily we swap around and we become. So it always swaps around. And before you know it, the rescuer who went in to do good, what the hell were you doing interfering? They become the victim and they, someone persecutes them. The person they were trying to help starts to persecute. So it just swaps around and around and around. So just stay out of it as much as you can. Right, here we go. I do want to get on to the two things, the other two things that I uh, wanted to show you. Initiative and freedom. This is a portrait by Hallman Hunt of Jesus. It's famous. It's called The Light of the World because he's holding a lamp and he's knocking at a door which is overgrown. Some of you may know it. If you do any art history, you may notice there is no handle on the door. That is deliberate. Some people have seen that as a picture of a person's heart. That Jesus knocks and it's up to the person to let them in. So you can make of that theologically what you like. But um, I find it very helpful in terms of thinking about pastoral care and some of the things you say, what's my role with a person? And especially when we've been talking about how ministers have often given us agendas, how we've been, on paper this looks good, so-and-so is going to be looking after that person in pastoral care and through the Bible study. But relationally, it's a disaster. Because that person actually doesn't want to talk to us about all those things that we're meant to be talking to them about. Mm. It doesn't work. Things on paper don't always work in practice, do they? Initiative and freedom will really help you. It comes from um, William Oglesby. This is a really old book, but it's great because he's actually using biblical themes for pastoral care. Um, And he has a whole chapter on it, chapter 2. Now, we can knock and say, I'm here for you, but it really is up to that person to say whether they want to engage with us pastorally or not. And they will show us that in several ways. They'll show us that maybe because they speak immediately about all the things they want to share off their heart or they won't. And when they don't, what does that tell us? I don't want to. Yeah, it might be now. It might be, I actually need a poo right now and I can't talk to you. (laughs) So there might be a physical reason and in hospitals, in the chaplaincy that I've been involved in, there's often physical reasons. It's like, oh no, the chaplain just arrived. I'd love to talk to them, but I really, I've got to be washed by the nurse. Or there might be physical, and that, that can be the same in parish, waiting for a phone call, it's inconvenient, or whatever. It might be they just don't feel like it today. They don't feel like opening up all that stuff. You're ready, you've got time, you've put time aside to see them on I Loving. But it's not their time to do that with you. So initiative and freedom, the teaching of that is take the initiative, take the initiative, but listen to their freedom to not go there. 
with you and they will show you that in what they choose to speak to you about. So those four focuses, they stick on facts and the weather. They're actually telling you something. Saying, I don't want to go there today. I don't feel safe with that. But as I was saying, if if they give you an emotion and you deal with that well and you give it back to them and they deny it, they don't want to go there for whatever reason. Maybe not now, just in that moment. Maybe they will in the future, but not now. Or maybe they never will with you for whatever reason. Can I ask how you take that initiative? Is that just a comment on I noticed you're not seeming happy today or something yes. like that. Is, yeah. that? is that what you're talking about? And that's where the Spirit of God is at work and we need to trust Him, don't we? Because He often reveals things to us. And what do we do with them? So He may reveal something, but we can test that. We can test that, whether that is to be used now or whether there's just an insight for the future. We can test it and, and raise something in a very gentle way. Yeah. And if they want to run with it, they'll run with it. It's called contracting. Oh. We'll stick with that. It's called contracting. You're contracting. Who am I to you? What do you want to do with me in this moment? So, again, in hospital chaplaincy, you might be visiting the wards and you have this amazing conversation with this person and then you come back two days later and you think you're going to pick up where you left off, but they're in a completely different place and actually, because that was so resolved then, they haven't got any interest in talking to you anymore about that. But that's the same with people. So you've been thinking about, like, oh gosh, where would I go with that next time? And it's done. <laughs> Need met, thank you very much. And that's the same with people that we might minister to. It's what your contracting is. It's called like the first few minutes in a hospital conversation. That's your contracting. Who am I to you? Who do you want me to be to you in this moment? Do you want me to be your friend today? And we're just going to hang out and have a coffee and talk about silly things. And you can banter with your friends in a way that is different. And then something in that conversation might get a bit deep. You might go, oh, pastoral cat comes on, and then you come back to something else. Does that make sense? So what am I to that person right now? What is my role? What agenda do I come with? But then actually, contractually, like you said, I might need to do an open agenda and say, hey, buddy, I wanted to meet up with you today because of this. And they might say, on your bar card, I want to talk to you about that today. But they'll make it clear. They might say, thank God, someone knows. You see? You've got to give them a freedom to go where they want to go. And that's probably not lost time if they're wanting to just talk about the weather or the cricket. No, it's building that. relationship. Yeah. Aged care chaplaincy. Um, those I know that uh, are keen evangelists and go into aged care chaplaincy often get very frustrated. Because <laughs> you might need to speak to someone about the weather and their grandchildren and the dog for three years before they're going to trust you with what happened in the war. But, but as an evan- evangelical evangelist, you want to get there. You know what their greatest need is, and they're going to hell. They're not, they're not saved yet. And they're 89, and their legs and their bodies falling apart. So you want to get there straight away. So no, it's not lost. 
building relationships and trust is not lost. It's just about being sacrificially loving the other person and going where they want to go. It's a deep discipline and skill. And it's certainly not passive. So, Sarah, yeah. tell me if this is you know, taking us off course. But, um, so say someone has... Um, you know, a big situation in their life. They're involved, you know, they're involved in sin in some way. Yeah. Um, and you're wanting to care for them and be alongside them, but also basically help them stop and see their, their ways and that sort of yeah. thing. Do you think that's then outside of pastoral care or something separate? Or, you know, because I'm thinking if, if you're meeting up with someone, and like I mean, I've had this, you meet up with someone and you know they've got this issue and you kind of want to talk with them about it and they don't want to go there, then, like, do you just wait and let them... Taking the initiative. So take the initiative. Hey, I know this is going on for you. Yeah. See what they do with it. Sure. If they don't want to go there, they don't want to go there. Yeah. They don't want to go there with you. Maybe. Mm. And you've got to remember that if somebody's in sin and you're part of a ministry team or you're a committed Christian or you're the minister's wife or anything that's seen as highly Christianized, then they might want to hide from you even more. Yeah. You might be the last person they want to talk to because that's a meeting. It's a very vulnerable thing to do is to admit your sin. We don't like doing that, do we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So take the initiative... And if they don't want to go there, you can always make that open statement, I will. I would always be here for you. And if ever you want to talk to me about it, if ever things get out of control, I'll, I'm here for you. It's a bit like that, the, you know, the father and the wayward son. And then do you wait for them to kind of ask your advice, like, what do you think I should do? Or... If they were going to do that with you, yeah. I love our Stuart's way. Um, he, he says, uh, from CBF days, he would say, I can't remember how many years it is, but he's got a long-term brother of it. He had a, a brother who was not in the Lord, and he would ask him periodically. So in those long-term relationships, like two, three years, every four, five years, I don't know what it was, but he would say, okay, it's time for me to raise that with him again, see how he's going. So periodically taking the initiative in those long-term relationships. Take the initiative, see where they want to go with it. They will supervise you, we call it. They will supervise you. You will see in their language. If you keep talking about salvation and they're really angry about someone who betrayed them, they're going to keep going back to the anger and anger. And then they're going to give up on you. If you don't listen, they'll just they'll give you a chance. People are very kind. And then they'll, they'll, they'll go, right, she's not listening or he's not listening. Then they won't raise it with you anymore. Um, on your sheet it says evangelism or evangelism. With our roles, we sometimes think it's our job to break down the door. No, it's evangelism. It's not our place to do that. We need to be very careful. It's abusive. Knock on the door and see if they want to open it. If you can just keep that image in mind, I think it will help. Right, 
When someone asks that big why question, this is the VDI model we call it. It's um, usually a cry from the heart. Usually something awful has happened or a series of things have happened. So I've got Munch there. But do you know that? It's called the scream. Over time, if good listening occurs, the question changes from why. Oh, what's happened there? From why to, it should, there's one missing, to what does it mean? It actually changes from why to what does it mean? Now, in the sustaining holding mode, ventilation. Ever come across someone and they just, it feels like they just puked all over you? <laughs> come across people like that? Okay. Very important that they have somewhere or someone to do that with. Been calling it the puke bucket, like the sustaining is holding the puke bucket. Been calling it that in chaplaincy for a very long time. But one day when I was thinking about prepping this for a, for a seminar, my son came right in front of me and emptied the piggy bank on the table. And I thought, that's a much... That's a good illustration of that same thing. Like sometimes things happen in people's lives, they get smashed over, the piggy bank gets smashed over, and there's just coins everywhere. That's the mess of what just happened. Okay? That's that ventilation. It's very needed. Just get it all out. It's like, well, that's what your body's doing, isn't it, when it's being sick? Something's making me sick, and I've got to get it out of my body. Um, sorry, can I just ask a question of that question we were just talking about before? Um, about asking somebody, like taking the initiative to ask them, um, does it get does it get to a point where they're still um, like in their sin, and it's been quite a while where you've periodically taken the initiative to talk to them about it? Does it get to a point where, as a Christian sister, there needs to be somebody who does kind of say, like, even if they don't want to talk about it, just hey. Like, I mean, he's still sitting in that scene. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well... And um, when, when you get to that point of where you draw the line of, like, is it like the most loving thing to do? Is, could the most really, loving thing to do be, like... really depends how you know about the sin. Have they ever told you that? Like, there's so many aspects to that. Again, I would love to talk to you after because I think they're really important questions. I think they're the everyday guts of how do you put this into application yeah. with those longer term difficult pastoral yeah. issues in your parish. Um, but we've only got five minutes and I'd love everyone <laughs> I love everyone to get to see this model. Yeah. So it's not that I don't think it's an important thing it is. Yeah. Um, so think of it as emotional catharsis. Sometimes things have happened beyond the person, smash, like circumstances beyond the control, smash them open. Sometimes they've been a part of making things, bad decisions themselves. Whatever it is, they need to get it off their chest, out of their system. If we keep listening and keep listening and keep listening to that ventilation, don't try and stop the process, don't try and fix it, don't try and redirect them, don't try and theologise and change their mind about what they think and feel about how bloody awful it is. If we let them swear, if we let them say horrific things about God that we probably think they don't believe but we want to correct, if we just leave it all out, let it out, we will not interfere with a, a very 
key process, which is differentiation. Because once all that money is out on that tabletop, and what we want to be is that tabletop, that strong, solid place, safe, secure, that they can empty that on. But it's got boundaries, hasn't it, the tabletop? It's not endless. Okay? We want to be that. The differentiation comes when they've got it all out on the table and they've heard themselves, they've heard themselves say horrendous things that they don't agree with and then they can start to sort it out. Oh, those are all the five cents and those are the tens. And they start to differentiate. Start to see things for how they really are. Okay? They're clarifying the issues. Often people say things in heat and then afterwards they say, I can't believe I said that. But they actually really needed to say it because they needed to engage with their feelings on the issue. So the why changes to, it's off the screen, but what does it mean? And they start to think, this has happened, but what does that actually mean? Instead of sitting in the hurt and the emotional hurt, they start to shift, start to see things differently. What was pink becomes blue. Integration is the carrying out of the choices. What am I going to do with that? Now I've differentiated, now I've clarified it, now I've seen it for what it is. Am I going to save it, spend it, donate it, invest it? What does that actually mean for my life now? And the integrated process could be anything. Because usually when something's got smashed open, there's a long-term long change that, you know, things are going to be different from now on. I might see things differently. I might not make the same kind of silly choices that I did before because I've changed. Or I might need to spread the load a bit. I was trying to do everything, and that's how I broke. I might need to spread the load. Whatever. I might need to go back and do some education or get some training so I don't end up there again. What's a bill one? <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> the belt? I might need to not, I might tighten my belt. I might need to make changes. Often things that have happened that are drastic means somebody might be disabled or the whole family framework system has to change. So might be living on less money or like a lot of decisions are going to need to be made. So you're living in a new kind of normal. Okay? So, integration, often something that's come from outside, smashes you open, then things may never be the same again. This may be that the ongoing reintegration may be things are never the same. But choices will be made in there of what that looks like and what it means, rather than just, ouch, this happened. I get a sense in which we're not really doing anything in all of that. It's merely a, a, a trusting, listening place where people are just... You just said what you're doing. What? The vital thing. You just said what you're doing. It's not that you're not doing anything. No. Listening. It's vital. Yes. I mean, listening rather than speaking. Yeah. We're doing that. Yeah. When somebody's really in that ventilating pro if they've really got to get it out, you're not, there's no space for you anymore. You might say, mm-hmm, uh, uh, mm-hmm. I see. That's it. You, you, there's no space. If you're doing good listening in that kind of way, they've just got to get it out. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, and in the differentiation, it's our temptation to try and jump in there because we can see things. We've got to let, that, let them be in charge of that process and that leads to true growth in them. And we know that in ourselves, don't we? If somebody ever tried to grow us up in our Christian walk, did it work? Not until we took it to on our board ourselves and saw things with God's spirit and his word and a circumstance and a person and then you grow and you go, yeah, get it. So it's strange how we try and do that for other people but we know it doesn't work for us. <laughs> so accepting things might always be different. Might now be blue and broken after what happened. <laughs> or you might overcome whatever it was that Smashed open. So, can I ask questions about the process? Um, I find that people want to ventilate, and I'm happy to let them do that. And I think they often see the issues once they've done that. Um, but they often come to people like us and want us to fix it. Mm-hmm. I, have, I find people come to me for advice or want, want me to find a solution. So, I, I'm not being rude. I don't know if that's a laziness that they don't want to think about and process it. How do we help them to finance themselves that's there without us giving advice? Like, I don't want to give them advice, but it, it seems they still come to us for that clarification or can you just direct me kind of thing? When you're right, it's probably all there for them. And we, how do we facilitate? If somebody's discussion? truly confused and you are a gut, they're asking you to guide them, that's an act of pastoral care, but are you talking about kind of financial advice or... No, no. What kind uh, of maybe even just personal issues and just life issues. In, in a church, Christian context yeah. maybe, but um, so not the big massive issues, but maybe more the day-to-day stuff. And yeah. Well, I think just in your language, just keep hearing them. Yeah. I can hear that's really hard for you. What have you come to understand about that? Keep, us, keep putting it back on them. Unless they're truly asking you for guidance because they really need your guidance as a Christian sister who knows the Bible well in that way. That guidance aspect is spiritual. It's a, it's a spiritual confusion. Obviously, people also have issues like finance and um, practical issues and then it's about finding maybe someone in the church who can help them with that or someone outside the church. But yeah, I think we, we, it's their own journey, so we need to stand alongside them here, is what I would be advocating. Um, so there you go. I wanted to get through the video because I think you'll use it a lot. Um, and just be aware of the fanning out of the, what is pastoral care, it's lots of things, and there's a place for evangelism and guidance and, and liberating. There's a place for it, but it's alongside other things, and you've got to see what's top of their list in this moment before we jump there. Sometimes it is that first place. But hopefully that's been helpful. I know that there's some people who wanted to chat afterwards, but it is morning tea time, isn't it? As far as I know, isn't it? Okay? Not question. Thank, right. Thank you. Thank you.